From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An aging population means more people with Alzheimer's, and that means more loved ones responsible for their care. For caregivers with jobs, it can be even more complicated. I'll be in a Zoom meeting, and she has no filters for the most part. She doesn't care. Used to be, I would say, Mom, I'm on camera, I'm in a meeting. She's like, oh, and she'd walk out. We'll look at how employees and employers are navigating Alzheimer's. Then a salute to black female judges in Colorado. Not only are we here, we're here and we want to make an impact in our community in a larger way. And later, record snowpack is good for our water supply, but it's not so good for elk and deer. Winter's been tough, but the next 60, 90 days, this is critical for them. How you understand a story can really depend on who is telling it. CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities on Real Talk. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth perspectives from people not often heard on the news. Real people, real voices, Real Talk. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30 here on CPR News and KRCC. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Juggling work life and home life can be challenging, especially when that home life involves caring for someone with Alzheimer's. It can feel like a full-time job in and of itself. Tracy Lewis of Denver is in that predicament right now. Hi, Tracy. Good morning. Meanwhile, Karen Burke has thought a lot about this from the employer side of things. She's head of HR for the city of Fort Collins. And hi, Karen. Hi. And we'll get added perspective on the toll dementia takes on caregivers from Brian Saracino, who lives in the Littleton area. He cared for his brother until his brother's death last year. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Tracy, you're the sole caregiver for your mother, Donna. She was the one who initially approached you about memory issues. What did she tell you? She would just tell me that she was having problems remembering things. Because, you know, how sometimes you would forget something, but then it would come to you eventually. It would not come back to her. Hmm. You went with her to be tested in 2018. They said she might have Alzheimer's, but they weren't sure. Then you went back with her in 2019, and they did tests again and determined she did have Alzheimer's. What kinds of tests did they do? They did um, a memory-type test where they would tell her something, like give her a sequence of numbers, and then have her repeat them back right away. And then they also would tell her something, like it's snowing outside. And then they would leave it for about five minutes or so and then come back and ask her what they had told her. And she couldn't repeat back any of that information. And you were with her at the time. Were you surprised that she couldn't answer these questions? Yes. At the time, actually, when she had said that she was having a problem remembering things, I was kind of blowing it off, thinking everyone forgets things. Alzheimer's dementia was not on my radar at all. How much has your mother declined since her diagnosis? She's declined quite a bit. For example, when I very first started working from home, she knew I was working. She pretty much did not 
bother me at all. She could make her own breakfast. She could do her own lunches. Now she's more dependent on me. Um, I am doing her breakfast, doing her lunches, and she'll come in sometimes and just, you know, I'll be in a Zoom meeting or something, and she has no filters for the most part. She doesn't care. Used to be, I would say, Mom, I'm on camera. I'm in a meeting. She's like, oh, and she'd walk out. Now she kind of just sticks around. And and so most of my coworkers and my supervisor knows, and they're like fine with it. And in fact, some of them even speak to her. And the decline has been tremendous in my mind. Hmm. You live with your mother. You work full time from home for the state of Colorado. We'll talk more about how you juggle that in a bit. But Brian, you were the sole caregiver for your brother, Dan, who since passed away, as we said. He was a Denver police officer. When did you start noticing his symptoms? We first began to see things of concern, a bit similar to what was just shared. I'd be on a phone discussion. We'd be 20 minutes into the discussion. He'd repeat almost word for word something he'd said to me 20 minutes earlier. That's when we first started to see an indication that maybe something was amiss. Your brother was single, without kids, and he was able to continue living on his own for a while. But you got worried about how it might be affecting his work as a police officer. You thought it could be dangerous, that he was carrying a gun. And you suggested you both meet with his supervisors to talk about it. How did he react to that idea? Well, candidly, at first he had that reaction of, I'm fine, you know, I'm durable. I'm just not getting a lot of sleep lately. But I would I would say, you know, we got together and said, hey, Dan, let's just look into this. Uh, let's move forward, see what we find. And, of course, as we moved down the path, we eventually found a diagnosis of, in his case, young onset, early onset Alzheimer's disease. How did his supervisors react to that conversation? Well, they first of all, the folks on, I worked with several folks on Denver Police Summit, fairly senior levels, and they were terrific in working with Dan. They, of course, realized after the diagnosis that he couldn't carry on in a role in law enforcement carrying a firearm. They did look at some administrative roles, but, you know, candidly, some of the cognitive challenges that were beginning to show themselves precluded that. He was just 57 years old, so this was what was referred to as early onset Let's bring in Karen Burke, who runs Human Resources for the city of Fort Collins. And Karen, I understand you yourself were a caregiver for a parent. How much did that experience shape your understanding as an HR professional? Uh, I think it shaped it quite a bit. I had worked with people that had different disease onsets that, that impacted their work. But this was a time in my life where I saw it firsthand. And I began to see employees just in a different light of caregiving responsibilities, whether it was children, children with disabilities, adults with disabilities, parents, elders. And I realized that we come to work as a whole package. We don't leave part of us at home. We come to work with all of that responsibility and sometimes grief and joy. And so normalizing that this is part of our work experience. How much does that come up in your work in terms of people coming to you and saying they need more flexible time or more time away with a loved one? It comes up a lot. We actually, in the last year, developed a a flexible work practices where we allow employees to, within some guardrails, tell us what works for their life circumstances. So I know I have several employees that do 410s because 
that works better. They can do caregiving on um, a Friday or a Tuesday. We allow for flex time. We also allow for extended leave. So under the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, you get 12 weeks. But we've said as a city, we're going to allow a year for an employee to step away. So we're trying to normalize that life does happen and support an employee during a very difficult time. And certainly have had employees come and talk to me about my experience and what they might be facing into. Certainly there's there's times of joy and a, a lot of time of grief too. And you said four tens, that is working four days a week for 10 hours. How much did COVID play a role in this flexibility? It was huge. I think it's one of the good things that came out of COVID. We saw that people could work remote. We saw people could work different schedules. They could flex and take parents to doctor's appointments or be there when they needed them to. We also saw that some of our colleagues didn't have that luxury, like our police officers and our utility employees. So we've built in an extra time bank for them called flexible leave, where they can actually step away from work to do some of those caregiving responsibilities that those of us that work from home or hybrid might be able to do more easily. Have you ever thought that an employee may be taking advantage of that flexibility? No, we haven't. We, we've had just so much appreciation, and I think people feel responsible for it. In fact, the flexible leave time, many employees didn't even use the whole bank last year. Have you ever had a situation where a supervisor comes to you because they notice an employee is struggling themselves with cognitive issues? I have. I have. It was really difficult, especially because my dad was a volunteer and the volunteer services director had the same worry about him. And I think we knew it as a family, but we weren't ready to lean into that. And we were just so happy that he was still volunteering. And so when the supervisor came to me and talked about one of her direct reports and memory problems, it brought back quite a few memories. And it also, I think, helped us guide how we wanted the conversations to go and how we wanted to support this employee so that they felt supported throughout the process. Unfortunately, this employee, she did stay with us for probably another year, but then at that time she did end up retiring. But even then we could plan it with grace and beauty that she could step away from work when she needed to. Karen, we know that the number of Americans living with Alzheimer's is rising as baby boomers age. If you have an employee who can no longer perform, what is the employer's responsibility? So we have responsibility under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we do an interactive process where we learn about the employee and what they can and can't do, what accommodations they might need. And in this case, uh, we were able to step the employee down to another position that didn't require the same cognitive level that she was in. And so we made a direct placement into another job for her where she could actually do all the essential functions of the job for a period of time. So those are great discussions to have. They're meaningful. They're deep. And it's really um, an employee's rights under the ADA to look at anything we can do to make the the position accessible and, and fit their ability to do. And Tracy, as I said earlier, you work from your home so you can be with your mother. How have your supervisors reacted to your situation? They've been extremely understanding. Um, they are fully aware of what I'm dealing with and going through. 
I'm also working 14s. So I try to make like doctor's appointments on Fridays. There's a lot of doctors that don't work on Fridays, but you know, I'm given the flexibility to be able to handle what I need to do with my mother as well as do my duties. How much does it restrict what you can do in your everyday life? It doesn't restrict anything work-wise. It, it's an extreme restriction on my personal life because I either have to take my mother with me to meet a friend for dinner or something, or I have to find someone to stay with her. So that's the huge restriction for me. And in terms of finding another caregiver to come in, I imagine that's a, a financial burden. It is. I have a person that comes in twice a week for four hours on Wednesdays and then on Fridays so that I can have a break and have a little personal time. But it's been very challenging. Plus, you know, sometimes it was hard for me initially because I felt like people aren't going to treat her the way I would treat her and she wasn't going to get the same kind of care that I would give her. So initially that was really hard for me. Researchers show that a lot of Alzheimer's caregivers have to cut back on their hours or stop working altogether. Have you ever considered that or having your mother move to, say, a memory care facility? Um, I've thought about the memory care facility. I personally am not ready for that. That just tears me up. Um, as far as resigning, not yet. Um, I am close to retirement, but I'm not quite there yet. I probably have a couple of years or so before I'm going to be ready to retire. And as long as I can continue to do my duties and do them well, I'm going to keep working and caring for my mother full time. Hmm. Brian, I understand you had to adjust your work life in order to be close to your brother. What were your challenges there? The initial challenges for myself, um, I was in the grocery industry for 40 years, and at various times in my career, I had to travel pretty extensively nationally. And of course, as things developed with my brother, I had to evolve into a position where I didn't have to travel anywhere near as much as I had previously. I, I of course, couldn't be in a situation where, you know, I'm at LAX or I'm at O'Hare Airport at night and my brother calls and needs something. So I was fortunate with some tenure and established relationships with folks in the industry, I was able to carry on working for a few years, found a position here locally with very minimal travel, which was, I was very fortunate and added a lot of value in my ability to be more involved, engaged, and care for my brother. As we said, your brother was initially living on his own. How often did you get that call that he needed something or something was going wrong? In the initial phases, uh, it was pretty limited. You know, he could still do quite a bit on his own. Um, of course, as things progressed, those calls became more frequent, you know, to be expected, of course. Um, but there are areas you might not think about, for example, even when he could still live on his own, things like going to the grocery store became a challenge. A lady who was my brother's neurologist shared with me one day in a hallway discussion. She goes, you know, you need to think about it, Brian. There's a lot that goes on cognitively in your brain just to go to the grocery store. You've got to make a list, compile a list, know where to find things in the store. So there's actually some simple things that came on the horizon that we needed to handle where 
myself or key family members, my wife, I was fortunate to have some family members who also supported and assisted with my brother's care. So I was very fortunate in those areas. You eventually decided it was best to move your brother into an assisted living facility. How receptive was he to moving? So initially he resisted that. The way I handled that was to stress some of the positives that, you know, stop and think. You're going to have people who will do your laundry. They've got a nice restaurant. They'll make your meals, bring you your dessert. They do the dishes. You can go down and hang and watch a movie. And so I played up the entertainment and life support elements of what he was going to find in an assisted living facility. In terms of communicating with your brother, did you find any approaches that worked best? Well, you know, to be candid, as others would know who've dealt with this, that can vary from day to day. There were days, honestly, there were days you it almost seems like, my gosh, maybe he's going to kick this thing, you know? And then very randomly, he could have a more challenging day where you'd have to scale back and, you know, you learn to handle just one topic at a time and speak slowly, handle more simple topics and one one topic at a time agenda. Tracy, besides having someone come in to help you, what helps you cope with the situation? Um, This is something that I had to learn, that when she would tell me things, it was her truth. So, like, she would say um, she's ready to go home because she believes she's, we're in Colorado Springs right now, so she's trying to get back to Denver. And that's her truth. Initially, I would try to rebunk it and say, oh, you are in Denver. But now I just, you know, let her talk. And then if she would ask me a question, like, how come we're not going home? I'll just tell her that no one's there at this time. I've heard stories that folks with Alzheimer's are up a lot in the middle of the night, and that's a huge challenge for caregivers. Do you have that kind of issue in your house? Occasionally, yes. It's not every night, but I would say probably once or twice a month, she'll get up in the middle of the night and say that someone's outside and they're here or someone told her to open the door. Um, I do find that a lot of times if the TV is on, she believes that that is part of her world and that those things are really going on. For example, one day she was watching the news and they were talking about a parade. So she just naturally assumed we were getting ready to go to the parade. Karen, in terms of the employee-employer situation, what kind of advice would you give employers about how they should approach workers who are caregivers as well? One thing the city did before I even started at the city is they uh, established employee resource groups. And one of them is on caregiving. At first, it was for single parents, and then it turned into caregiving in a broader sense, and and there is offshoots. So there is an elder care portion of the employee resource group. Having that, you have a community. You you get together once a month, and you talk about what issues you're having. We, you know, at that time, we were having issues with my dad wanting to take a shower or believing he he believed he had already taken a shower. and I was able to get ideas. We brought the Alzheimer's Association in to have discussions with employees and then trained leaders on just what's possible with people's schedules and how we can support employees. So I found it to be really a very supportive work environment. And it, 
it's still not perfect. I still missed things with my dad that I wish I didn't miss. Um, and I still wasn't there when I felt like I should have, but I was able to do almost everything I needed to do. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. And Tracy, thank you. Thank you. And Brian, thank you. Thank you very much. Karen Burke is the head of HR for the city of Fort Collins and cared for her father, who had Alzheimer's. Tracy Lewis of Denver cares for her mother, Donna. And Brian Saracino cared for his brother, Dan, who died last year. Next Tuesday, April 4th, the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado will co-host a virtual webinar called Alzheimer's in the Workplace. It will run from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., and it's open to the public. For more information on how to register, go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There are a lot of personal stories we don't hear. And I just started crying in the middle of the store. From people and places that are just around the corner and just beyond sight. I'm Luis Antonio Perez. I'm on a mission to find these stories in Colorado and share them with you. The fire has given me resolve for prioritizing my life. My Story So Far is a new podcast from Colorado Public Radio that brings you personal stories from around the state. Find My Story So Far wherever you get podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colorado's judges are getting more diverse. Nineteen black female judges were celebrated recently at an event hosted by the Colorado Association of Black Women Attorneys. Danielle Rash is with that nonprofit. She spoke with Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We needed to honor and recognize the people who were stepping up to the plate to actually fulfill those roles and to say, not only are we here, we're here and we want to make an impact in our community um, in a larger way. Of course, this is Women's History Month. And it's, you know, it's the time of year where we do acknowledge and honor and celebrate the contributions of women. What would you say that women and Black women bring to the judiciary? We bring compassion. We bring a history of struggle. We bring a history of ourselves not always being recognized as first off people, let alone females and women in society who deserve a voice. Where do you see room for growth in Colorado's effort to diversify the state judiciary? We need to also push for more Latinx, Latino, Latina judges Um, They do not have a a proportionate representation on the bench, let alone uh, within the law. Um, That was one area that even that night that we acknowledged, noting that we were honoring Black women, right, that there are areas where we do need to push to ensure that people see themselves in those people who who become attorneys, right, that that they can see themselves getting to there, um, that there's a path of sponsorship, just like there is for um, what we would say our dominant culture individuals, right? Um, So it's very, very important that we acknowledge that even though we're making strides and have made strides in Colorado, there are still very much areas where we can do better. We need to do better and we need to support each other in those efforts. 
Danielle Rash is a senior assistant city attorney in the Denver City Attorney's Office and a member of the Colorado Association of Black Women Attorneys. That organization recently hosted an event called a Judge's Salute Celebration to honor the state's current and former black female members of the judiciary. Most of them were appointed to the bench in the last four years. Chandra also talked with Gary Jackson. He's a former senior Denver County Court judge who spoke at the event. When we talk about a judge's salute, I think we have to go back in history. In Colorado, we did not have our first woman judge until 1964, and that was Judge Zeta Weinshank, and she was on the Denver Municipal Court. So when we talk about saluting Black women judges, whether they be Black or of any other particular race, it is significant because the history is so recent in terms of saluting women judges at all. So I start with the history of Zeta Weinshank in 1964, and then I also think, make of note that our very first Black woman judge was not appointed until 1994. Wow. That was Claudia Jordan. That was 30 years after Judge Weinshank. And it's of significance. It was to the same bench. Both of them were selected to the Denver Municipal or Denver County Court. And so we are now saluting the Black women judges. And in about a four-year period of time, there were approximately 15 Black judges appointed. And um, uh, many of those Black judges that were appointed in that four-year period of time were women. So there's reason. There's reason to celebrate. What was the kind of feeling that you got by being a part of this event? There was a noticeable energy level. There was a noticeable joy of being there. It was apparent this coming together of all these women judges not only was historic, but it was uh, a joyful experience. It was an, uh, a time to be able to bond together because we're talking about judges from all different levels, uh, municipal court, county court, state court. And so great energy, great joy. Can you share with us some of the data about diversity? In October of 2018, that was actually a month or two before Governor Polis uh, started his term of office. Uh, Colorado was on the verge of having zero black district court judges throughout the state of Colorado. And when I say zero, we're talking about zero out of approximately 230 judgeships that are available. Also, we were on the verge of having zero black appellate court judges, and that was out of 30 appellate court judges, seven on the Supreme Court, 23 on the Colorado Court of Appeal. And so as of the night of the event, what had taken place is that there are currently 15 black judges on the state court bench, nine serve at the district court level. What is significant in terms of those uh, new appointments is that the first time in history we have a black judge in Boulder, Colorado, Dia mm. Lindsay. The first time in history we have two judges in Adams County, Mattache Jean, Marcus Ivey. The first time in history we have a black woman district court judge in Colorado Springs, Frances Johnson. 
So this is what I consider to be remarkable history in a four-year period of time. In addition, we have six openly LGBTQ judges that were appointed in 2021 and 2022, including one to the Colorado Court of Appeals. However, during this four-year period of time, the progress has not been as great with Latinx judges. Mm. In 2008, we had 27 Latinx judges. Currently, we have 32. So there's been an increase of five. But the problem with that number is that if you look at the Colorado population, 22% of the Colorado population is Hispanic Americans, yet only 9% of the judges are Hispanic Americans. So that's, um, that is what, in my opinion, still a severe need that we have to address. With respect to the Black population, we still have no Black judges on the Colorado Court of Appeals. We have no Black judges on the Supreme Court level. And these are the two highest levels of court in Colorado. These are the two courts that are making the highest level decisions affecting the population of Colorado, yet there are no black judges on either one of those courts. With respect to Asian Americans, there is a report called the Legislative Report of 2022, authored by Sumi Lee, who is our outreach coordinator. She was hired in um, approximately uh, May of 2019. This is a position outreach coordinator, which is unique in the United States. It's my understanding that Colorado is the only state that had a outreach coordinator as of 2019. But her job is working on increasing judicial diversity at all levels. In October of 2018, I had a personal call to action where I saw the need. I helped form what was called the Colorado Bar Association, Colorado Judicial Institute, Coalition on Judicial Diversity. We put together a team of 17 leaders from across the state, including about 23 different legal organizations that put together an action plan to address uh, judicial diversity that was focusing not only on Blacks and Hispanic Americans, but also Asian Americans, Native Americans, and the LGBTQ population. These efforts, with the assistance of Sumi Lee as the outreach coordinator, uh, resulted in different programs. There was a Dream Team 2.0 program in which aspiring individuals who wanted to be judges were matched with retired judges in a mentoring type situation that lasted for about six months. There were efforts by the various specialty bars, uh, such as the Sam Carey Bar Association, the Colorado Hispanic American Bar Association, the Colorado Women's Bar Association, where there'd be seminars to the membership on the value of being a judge, how you could put yourself in the best possible position in terms of the type of work that you did as a lawyer, the type of application that you would make in order to put yourself in a position to be appointed as a judge. And then there were efforts in terms of uh, addressing the judicial nominating commissions in the 23 judicial districts in terms of spotlighting on those districts the need for more diverse judges 
and how to address the pipeline issue, as well as to address the lack of, let's say, diversity that has taken place in the past, and to put each judicial nominating commission in a position to be able to fairly assess the quality and the qualifications of the applicants to be judges. So these are some of the things that were done to uh, address the lack of diversity in Colorado that I was seeing as of October of 2018. Judge Jackson, why is diversity important and valuable when it comes to the state judiciary? Well, it's important and valuable, not only with respect to the judiciary, but with all different uh, aspects of the legal profession. I know diversity is is something that is important for the trust that our citizens feel when they are in a courtroom setting. And it is also a benefit to those individuals who were around me, either as a an attorney, either as a prosecutor, either as a me being on, let's say, the board of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar or the board of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, uh, because the value of diversity is that we get to know each other, we get to have the benefit of each other's experiences, we get the benefit of being able to communicate with each other. And it's only through information that uh, we grow as people we grow us as a profession. Going forward, what should the conversation be about the representation of more women and more diverse people in the state judiciary? Colorado is looked upon as being a um, state in which the population is increasing. The It's a state that is considered to be a progressive state. It is a state in which uh, we have been able to be recognized as a state in which a person is going to be able to succeed irrespective of past stereotypes. When I say that, Patricia Schroeder, who was our House of Representative person that was elected in 1972. Uh, she was the first woman. And she recently passed away. She recently passed away. We can look at Zeta Weinshank, who went from a Denver Municipal Court judge to being our very first woman federal judge. We can look at individuals like Norm Early, who became in Colorado its first black district attorney. And then we can look at the series of mayors in Denver that started with Wellington Webb, Federico Pena, Michael Hancock. What this shows is that Colorado is a state in which uh, leaders have come to the fore because of their talent, because of their creativity, and that stereotypes that have been created over past history have been broken. And so we have to continue this progressive nature of Colorado so that at the top of the legal profession, whether it be in the judiciary, whether it be in the boardrooms of uh, private uh, law firms, that there are diverse leaders in those rooms. Judge Jackson, thank you. Thank you for having me. Former Judge Gary Jackson speaking with Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. 4% of the judges in Colorado are Black.
Colorado is flirting with record snowpack. It's great news for water managers, but that snow spells trouble for some Colorado wildlife. Rachel Gonzalez with Colorado Parks and Wildlife says elk and deer herds in northwest Colorado are struggling to find food underneath all that snow. You know, unfortunately right now, and specifically in that northwest corner of our state, so Craig, uh, Maybell, Rangeley, that area, they're getting hit pretty hard. A lot of people know that area is known for its wildlife. You know, we're talking upwards of over 50,000 animals that live here every year. Um, it's the, some of the area that has, you know, the largest elk herd in the nation, and they're seeing an exceptionally hard winter. In fact, it could be the worst winter for those herds in nearly four decades. In 07-08, they also had a pretty severe winter, but most people are comparing this to 83-84. The one thing that they do say the difference between the two is they didn't have the wind that we're having. The snow doesn't help. Um, Cold doesn't help. But what's really causing is when you're adding all of those, including that wind, you're piling up snow in areas that, you know, you're already looking at 30 inches or more of snow. And now as that wind blows, you're just piling on more. But then it's creating a very hard crusted layer where animals are are walking on top of it. You know, it's so hard in some areas that elk can't even break through. And, you know, when you think about an elk, this is a very large animal. The snow also pushes animals to congregate near roads, putting motorists and animals alike at risk. Highways make for easier walking for the herds. And wildlife managers in northwest Colorado are urging drivers to take care, especially around dawn and dusk. They're doing everything that they can to conserve what little fat and calories they have. Um, you know, winter's been tough, and but the next, you know, 60, 90 days, th- those are, this is critical for them, especially for, you know, females, because um, most of them are in their third trimester right now. So um, they're using these roadways. The winter die-off could also lead to significant cuts to fall hunting licenses in that area. Elk licenses in the Moffat County region are among the most coveted in all of Colorado. But it's not all bad news. Springs that haven't run in years are likely to see water again this summer. And when the snow does melt, there should be ample vegetation to munch on. It's sad right now. And you know, it just it feels like there's a lot of death. Um, again, there's that silver lining. You know, we're getting much needed moisture, moisture that we haven't seen in, in quite a while. And I know we all wish maybe that maybe we're good with snow when we're done with snow. But it, it is going to make even a small, um, but small is better than nothing, impact on some of these areas that have been hit hard. That's Rachel Gonzalez, Public Information Officer for the Northwest Region of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. By the way, feeding the elk and deer isn't an option. Gonzalez says doing so causes more harm than good to the wild animals. A decision on how the winter will affect hunting in the area will be made in May. (music) 
a tree, a storm, and the serenity of the mountains, they create an escape for C. Marie Furman, host of Terra Firma, CPR's podcast about the outdoors, the sounds of the natural world, and our place in it. Come with me on this journey. This time, to the woods of west-central Idaho. On an early July morning, I sit against the trunk of an old ponderosa pine on a ridge. I can see two rivers, the Seasash and, in the distance, the salmon weaves its way through the canyon it is still cutting. The hillsides are green from a late winter and from heavy spring rain. Walking the trail to get here, the balsam root arrow leaf with their sunflower faces made south-facing slopes golden. When the head of a bloom turns just so, the deep center of brown becomes an eye. Then it appears as though the entire hillside is arrow leaf eyed and I am peering into the heart of the Salmon River Mountains. The clouds are gathering to the east. A storm is approaching. This Ponderosa is older than any of the English names of this place. It was a sapling before there was a state. Knew the songs of Nimipu, Tukadika, and thousands of birds. How it survived the axe and the fires when it was younger, I cannot say. But that survival is why I have come. I am learning about tree sway, about how wind makes a tree stronger because the trunk grows like a muscle as the tree moves back and forth. The very thing that might harm the tree is teaching it how to be resilient. I have lain at the base of pines in the wind and watched the crown's arc across the sky. This ponderosa is a reminder of the great effort living takes, the work of it. Not far away, near Thunderbolt Peak, the thunder rolls. It is not only the effort of living, the strength it requires, but resilience that I am learning. Its trunk is naked of limbs for the first 20 feet. The three-inch bark of this ponderosa tree resembles enormous brown puzzle pieces. 
and the fires that have crept through have merely blackened thin layers, which eventually, naturally, peel off. Science calls the Ponderosa fire adapted. Maybe adapted and resilience are more words for survival. I have come up here to experience the storm, the wind, the rain. I saw the gray clouds when I woke, remembered the giant Ponderosa, and took the steep hike into the air that, as the morning came, grew colder. The breeze has turned to gusts. It goes against better thinking, I know. A ridgeline in a thunderstorm? But there are lessons only the wilderness can offer me. Miles below here, where these rivers meet the Snake River and then the Columbia, debates continue about the protection of salmon, the release of dams, the safety of wolves, the survival of native women. It would be so much easier, I suppose, to walk into the deep woods, to shelter. But so much that I care about lies on these ridge tops, in presence or in memory, or just below, in or near these mighty rivers. And like the Ponderosa, I need to know survival this way and in this place. The rain, when it begins, comes slowly, like grace. I push my fingers into the granitic soil and wait. The robin and the hermit thrush are quiet. The fledgling woodpeckers in the hole above me have grown silent too. The wind comes and heaves, tossing the crown of the ponderosa, tangling my hair. Pollen sweeps across these slopes and my bare skin. Despite my fear, I rise to my full height and relax to the gale. When the storm has passed and the trees have stilled, I thank the Ponderosa and walk down the trail toward camp. The sun comes out and my hair and clothes begin to dry. It's then I remember the eyes of the arrow leaf and feel them upon me. I turn once again to look into the heart of these mountains and in the wind that now echoes down another canyon, I hear the words of an elder who said, learn from nature and fight for it. The eyes of your ancestors are watching.
That's Terra Firma with Jose Marie Furman and field audio by Jacob Job, who recorded the sounds in Rocky Mountain National Park. Follow this and all of the episodes of Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.